Welcome to I Dare You, a series through the book of Daniel with Skip Heitzig. The last section of this book begins in chapter 12 of verse 4 down to verse 13. Let's pray together before we start. Father, we always feel the need to talk to you before we hear you and your word speak to us. Simply, we want to say that we are opening ourselves up and giving you permission to be God in our lives, using the principles of Scripture to speak to us, to change the way we think, and ultimately to change the way we live. Lord, you said in your word, that we should trust you with all of our hearts and not lean to our own understanding, but in all of our ways acknowledge you and you would direct our paths. So grateful, Lord, that we live in a country where we have the freedom to gather to worship. And as we gather, Lord, we pray that this time would be used by your Spirit to lead us, to direct us, as the writer of Proverbs said, to direct our paths, our steps. In Jesus' name, amen. I have a little Welsh terrier named Mac, a little puppy dog. You've, you've seen him before. I've introduced him to you before. and uh, He's a creature, like most dogs, that live by conditioned response. There's certain things you do, and your dog will respond to what you do. For instance... When he hears the garage door open, he goes over to the door and wags his tail and waits for somebody to come in. He's all excited, like, wow, you came home. So awesome. Conditioned response. When I put certain shoes on, he spins around in circles, gets all excited because he knows we're going to go for a run. Conditioned response. Um, When uh, it's morning time, he knows there's a certain morning treat that he deserves. And when it's nighttime, there's a certain evening treat that he deserves because conditioned response. He's, he's a dog in my family, and the quality of his life depends on the initiation and care of his owners. I also am a creature that lives by conditioned response. I'm married. And when I hear my wife stirring in the morning... I know it's time for me to get out in the kitchen and make her coffee. It's just what I do. It's what we've done. When I know she's about to come home, time to clean up the house, straighten it up. Uh, when we get in the car to get together, it's a little bit different. When I'm in my car alone, I usually have the stereo pretty cranked. When she's in the car with me, it's down really low so we can talk. <laughs> she's, she's got me trained pretty well. I heard about a man who said to his doctor, Doc, my wife is hard of hearing. I need to bring her in to see you. Doctor said, no problem, we'll set up an appointment. But until then, there's a simple little test you can give to your wife to find out how bad this hearing loss has gotten. So here's what you do. You're about 40 feet away from her. In a normal conversational tone, say something to your wife. If she doesn't respond, move closer, like 30 feet, say it again, that no response, go about 20 feet, no response, 10 feet, to kind of find out how bad this hearing loss is. So that night, his wife is cooking dinner in the kitchen, he's in the living room, and he says in a normal tone, honey, what's for dinner? 
No response. He moves a little closer, says, Honey, what's for dinner? No response. Moves into the dining room now. Honey, what's for dinner? No response. Moves into the kitchen. Honey, what's for dinner? No response. Gets right up behind her and says in a firm voice, Honey, what's for dinner? She turns around and says, For the fifth time, honey, I said it's chicken. (laughs) So she didn't have the problem, did she? He had the problem. Every relationship, if it's a healthy relationship, has a response mechanism to it. We have a relationship with God, and essentially our part is to respond to His initiation. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love Him because, finish it up, He first loved us. God initiated, we responded. God sent His Son into the world, provided a means by which we could hear that gospel message, be it an evangelist, a pastor, a book, a tract, a radio program, whatever it might be. And we respond to that. But that's just the beginning. Our whole life should be built on response to God. And we're going to look at that as we finish out the book of Daniel. Now just to refresh your memory... We're closing in chapter 12 a long vision that has lasted three chapters. Chapters 10, 11, and 12 is the fourth and final, probably the longest of all the revelatory visions that Daniel has received in this book. The uh, messenger projects all the way to the end of days for Daniel. He sees the scope of world history from his time onward into the great tribulation period. Now as we begin in verse 4, I'm going to make three statements based upon the text, based upon the principles in the text, three statements, and then three questions that I consider to be appropriate responses uh, to God. And my hope is that, um, my sincere hope and prayer has been, is that we will respond to God as instinctively as my little dog Mac responds when he spins around when we're going to go out for a run or I respond when my wife gets up in the morning and I make her coffee that when God does something or says something it will be second nature to us to respond to Him. That's a good relationship. So let's begin in verse 4 with the first principle. Here it is. God reveals the truth. God reveals the truth. Question. Do I respond to his authority. Verse 4, the messenger says to Daniel, but you, Daniel, shut up the words. Now, please read that the right way. He's not saying, Daniel, dude, shut up. He's simply saying, close up or seal up or shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. In other words, Daniel, um, you're getting a revelation. You are not to keep this revelation private and to yourself. You are to seal it or preserve it until the end of days. Now, I find it significant that after 2,600 years, that's, that's how long ago this vision of Daniel was given, 2,600 years have passed And the book of Daniel has never been more relevant than it is today in this generation. Seal it. Keep it until the time of the end. Then notice what it says. 
Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. I was reading something I wanted to pass on. I found it fascinating. You know who Isaac Newton is, yes? Sir Isaac Newton. He's called the father of modern physics. Uh, Did you know that Isaac Newton was a Bible scholar as well? Did you know that he actually wrote a commentary on the book of Daniel? He was fascinated with the end times, and he was reading Daniel chapter 12. He came to verse 4, and his comments are something along these lines. This verse can only apply to the very end of history in the future, the end of time itself. He said, it is my belief that knowledge will increase to the extent... Now, he wrote this in 1680. Knowledge will increase that men will be able to travel from country to country in an unprecedented manner, and that people, because knowledge increases so much, will be able to travel as fast as 50 miles an hour. Now that, you laugh, but that's not even the funniest part. First of all, he was right. He wrote that in a day and age when top speed on a horse was 30 miles an hour, and that's at a short burst, you know, going like 20, 25 miles an hour typically. 50 miles an hour. We laugh at that. So did, a few years later, a French atheist named Voltaire. He's reading Sir Isaac Newton. Voltaire was not a believer. He was a skeptic. Listen to what he wrote. See what a fool Christianity makes of an otherwise brilliant man. A scientist like Newton. For he actually writes that men may travel at the rate of 50 miles an hour. Has he forgotten that if a man would travel at this rate, he would be suffocated that his heart would stand still? That's the funniest part. Here we are scoffing at Voltaire, who scoffed at Newton. Because we live in a day and age, the space shuttle has conveyed men at the rate of 18,000 miles per hour. Knowledge shall increase. It is a difficult verse, I will admit that, and it has been interpreted in a number of ways, most often this verse is interpreted as, in the last days, general knowledge will increase and people will have all these technological capabilities. Now, in some ways that is true. I remember when I bought my, my set of Encyclopedia Britannica. Remember those? They're called books. Remember books? Okay. Encyclopedia Britannica weighed like 75 pounds. It takes two complete shelves in my library. Imagine my surprise a few years later when I found a CD-ROM, which is sort of history to us now. It's like, oh yeah, I remember those. A CD-ROM weighing only a few ground, uh, grams that has the entire set of Encyclopedia Britannica and then some. Now those things are outdated. Now we have clouds in the Internet and information stored. And you can access it not just with a computer, but your phone can access it. The four most dreaded words in business today are these, our servers are down. Four most dreaded words. Our servers are down because that stops the flow of information. Someone once noted that from the time Christ died to the year 1700, knowledge on earth doubled. It took 1700 years, in other words, for all of the previously accumulated knowledge to double on earth. In the year 1900, 
it doubled again, only 200 years later. In the year 1950, it doubled again, only 50 years later. In the year 1970, it doubled again, only 20 years later. Now, information doubles every two years. Prognosticators are pointing to a day very soon when knowledge on earth will double every single day. So we read that and we're just sort of taken aback by how that applies to today. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. However, having said that, and that is generally true, I do not believe that's the primary intent of verse 4. I think the context of verse 4 is the time of the end. And it's already been discussed and described what that means. It's the great tribulation period, the last three and a half years principally. Knowledge shall increase and people will go to and fro. I think what the intention and context of that verse is, is simply this. At the end of time, people will be going to and fro looking for answers to the questions, why are all these events happening? Why are all these things happening? And they're going to look at the book of Daniel and they're going to find answers. And the book of Daniel will become clearer and clearer and clearer, especially to those living at the end of days. I have 50 books, right around 50 books, 50 commentaries on the book of Daniel alone. And one of the most helpful books is by a guy named Leon Wood. And he gives a paraphrase of this verse I'm going to share with you. Many shall run to and fro in their desire for knowledge of the last things and finding it in Daniel's book, because it will have been preserved to this end, their knowledge shall be increased. In the tribulation period, people will be running around looking for answers as to why things are so bad on the earth. They're going to find Daniel as well as Revelation. It's going to be like a play-by-play book giving them all the answers they need. Knowledge of the end times will be increased. But there's a greater principle in verse 4. And here it is. Daniel was told to preserve the revelations given to him so that people at the end of the age could refer to them, could read them, could understand them. And here's the principle. God reveals truth. Are you responding to His authority in your life? When you read the Bible or hear a sermon, are you responding to God's authority over your life? Now, I ask that question because this is one of the great frustrations that Bible teachers and pastors have, is that we hear sermons every week, we go to church every week, we're exposed to life-changing principles every week, but not many lives are changing every week. Every week in Christian churches around America, husbands are still dumping their wives. Women are still leaving their husbands. People are still lying to each other. People are refusing to forgive each other. Christians are still gossiping with each other. And we ask, how can that be? Being exposed to God's life-changing truths every week. Here's how. Here's how. You can listen two different kinds of ways. There's the active listener, then there's the passive listener. When I watch TV, I, list, I, I watch very passively. In fact, I, I go through channels like crazy. I'm going up and down. I've told you that before. I can't really like lock in. It's like, okay, I got to listen. I can't do this for an hour. So we, we can listen to sermons passively, not actively. Not like 
man, God is speaking in me. I, I, I'm going to p- apply this. It's like, oh, nice message. That's it. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and he was a president way, way before my time, like in the 40s, early 40s. Um, he, he was wondering when he would give a speech how much people were really listening to him. So he decided he would experiment one night at the White House. There was a little reception dinner and people were going to meet him and he was going to shake hands with them. So he decided to say something to see if people were listening. So people would uh, come up and shake his hand and they'd form a line. And, and, and to each person in line, he would say something just to see if they were listening. They were all excited to meet the president. So he would shake their hands and then he said, I killed my grandmother this morning. He flashed that big smile. I killed my grandmother this morning. And most people said, Great job, Mr. President. Keep up the good work. Or, How lovely. Shook his hand and walked away. He goes, Nobody's listening to me. Except for one foreign diplomat. And when he leaned in and said, I killed my grandmother this morning, the diplomat leaned in and said, I'm sure she had it coming to her, Mr. President. You know, Jesus said, take heed what you hear. But he also said, take heed how you hear. Let me give you a few suggestions on how to respond to God's authority. Number one, expose yourself to the truth. Number two, evaluate yourself by the truth. And number three, engage yourself with the truth. Let me explain those. Expose yourself to the truth. You're doing it right now. You're here in church. Bible's open. Now let me make it a suggestion to take that to another level. Start taking notes in church. Because if you're like every other human being on earth, you will forget most of everything you hear right after you hear it. If you write down what you believe God is speaking to your heart out of the Word, you can go back and refer to that later and engage at a different level. You're exposing yourself at a different level. You want to take it a step further? Get into a small group and discuss those things. That's exposing yourself to the truth. Number two, evaluate yourself by the truth. It's possible when we listen to a sermon, a message, to deflect the message. See, we think thoughts like, I know somebody who needs to hear this. Yeah, you (laughs) and me. We all need to hear it. You know, we can become like spiritual Houdinis. Remember Houdini? He could get out of like anything. So God is trying to wrestle us to the ground with His truth, and we're really good at getting out of it. Evaluate yourself by the truth. We're good at evaluating truth. We're just not that good at evaluating ourselves by the truth. Number three, engage yourself with the truth. What do I mean by that? When you're reading your Bible, when you're listening to a sermon, you ask yourself this question. Is this a command that I'm reading that I must obey? Is this a warning that I must heed? Is this something I must stay away from or a promise that I must gather? That's engaging yourself with the truth. G. Campbell Morgan wrote, I personally believe the reason why many people have lost their love for the Bible is that they have failed to recognize the necessity for obedience to its moral claims. So, God reveals the truth. Do I respond to His authority? Here's the second principle and second question. 
God regulates the future. Do I respond to his sovereignty? Verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked. And there stood two others, one on this riverbank and the other on that riverbank. And one said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river. When he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. Although I heard, I did not understand. I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? Aren't you glad that Daniel said, I I didn't get it? I am, because I've I've studied and taught now the whole book of Daniel. I come to the end going, there's a lot I still don't get. And I know you feel that way, don't you? (laughs) Daniel felt that way, and he confessed it. And here's an interesting answer. Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the end of time. Many shall be purified, made white, and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand but the wise shall understand. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. So let's get the picture. Daniel sees two angels, one on one side of the Tigris River, if you remember and the other on the other side of the Tigris River. I've been to the Tigris River. It's a very wide waterway. So these angels were at a considerable distance from each other. And then above and between was this man clothed in linen that we already saw in chapter 10. And one of the angels has a question, which is interesting. How long until the fulfillment of these things? In other words... How long will all of these oppressive events that have been described so far, how long are they going to last? So in verse 7, this being above the waters raises his right hand and his left hand. Sort of interesting. You know, the other day my grandson came to my house. Door opened. He was there. First thing he did is this. Not, I'm praising you, Grandpa. But pick me up, Grandpa. He raised both hands. Now, in ancient times, when a Jew wanted to make a solemn oath, he would raise his right hand. To raise both hands was like, this is like a super solemn oath. It's sort of like, verily, verily, I say unto thee. It's a very important, solemn, truthful thing that is about to be said. The question is, how long is this going to last? Here's the answer given. Time, times, and a half a time. Remember that phrase back in chapter 11? We discussed it. Time, time, times, and a half a time. Time, one. Times, plural, two. So one and two is three and a half, three and a half. It's an ancient way of saying three and a half years. Time, times, and a half a time. So here's the deal. Here's the answer. The reign of the Antichrist and the worst period of history will last three and a half years. That's the timing of it. Now we're told that also 
in other places. Revelation chapter 11, verse 3, and Revelation chapter 12, verse 6. But listen to how it's put. This shall last 1,260 days. That's three and a half years based on a 360 lunar year cycle. Revelation 13, verse 5. The Antichrist has given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue 42 months. Three and a half years. 1,260 days. So, here's the, here's the picture. From the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week, it's that seven-year, last seven-year period, from the midpoint of that, which is the abomination of desolation, until the second coming of the end, the, the close-off of the reign of terror of the Antichrist, will be three and a half years, or 42 months, or 1,360 days, 260 days. We have a little bit of a problem in verse 11. It says that from the time the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. So we have an extra month added for some reason. And just when we're scratching our head going, huh? The very next verse says, blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. So we have an extra month and an extra 45 days, or a total of 75 days, after the 1,260, 42 months, three and a half year time period. Reign of terror of the Antichrist. So the question is, what happens during that month? What happens during that 45 days beyond that? Answer? I'm not sure. And I'm not sure because we're not told. Daniel's asking questions, the angel's asking questions, and sort of all he gets is, go away now. Seal this up until the very end of times. I will guarantee you this, when all this comes down during that great tribulation period, they'll get it. They'll understand it. Now, I can make a few guesses, and I will do that. The very last battle of history, the bloodiest battle of history in the future, is called the Battle of what? Armageddon, where the nations gathered together in the Middle East, and it's a bloodbath. It is probably going to take a period of time to mop up after the Battle of Armageddon. So to have a month, and then 45 more days, 75 extra days, would probably be one of the activities that would go on during that time. Here's the second possibility. According to Jesus Christ, Matthew chapter 25, He's going to judge the nations of the earth based on their treatment of the nation of Israel. It's the sheep and the goats judgment. So after Jesus comes back at the end of 1,260 days after the abomination of desolation, it could take a period of time for that judgment to take place. Number three, According to Ezekiel 20, the Lord will gather believing Jews from all over the world back to the land of Israel. That travel arrangement could take some time. Number four, there's going to be the setup of a governmental machinery, the machinery for the government of the millennial kingdom that could take place during that time. And number five, according to Scripture, God is going to reestablish the ancient borders of Israel from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates River. 
It's going to broaden out the borders. All of that establishment could take time. Add to that some other factors. There's going to be topographical changes that take place on earth. For instance, the Dead Sea, nothing lives in it except microbes, will during that time become a living body of water where people will fish, cast their nets in the Dead Sea. It'll be infused with fresh water. There'll be a temple, a millennial temple that is built for that thousand year period. All of that could be some of the activities that take place during the 30 plus the 45 or a total of 75 extra days. But we're told this, blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. Why? Because you'll be really blessed if you make it all the way through to the kingdom age. There's a greater principle here. Have you noticed in the book of Daniel how detailed God is in just about every chapter? This is going to happen, that's going to happen, that's going to happen. And and sometimes it's given to the exact date. So here is God regulating the future, which proves to us that God is sovereign. You know what that means when I say God is sovereign? What does it mean? What does sovereign mean? You say He's in control. It means more than He's in control. It means He's all-powerful, ultimately supreme. Therefore, He can govern and control the very creation that He made. We believe God is sovereign. Now, the deist doesn't believe that. The deist believes that God created the universe, wound it up, and then sort of steps back and learns as he goes along and watches things happen and goes, huh, that's interesting. That's what the deist believes. The liberal theologian doesn't believe in the sovereignty of God. The liberal theologian says God is a concept invented by weak people who are trying to explain their lives. He's an impersonal force. He's not real. He's not personal. He's not powerful. We believe... According to the Bible, that God is sovereign. And it's proven to us time and time again because God predicts with precision the future. Question, am I responding to God's sovereignty? I want you to vote. I want to see a real show of hands. If you believe God is sovereign, I want you to raise your hand up. If you don't believe that, keep it down. But if you believe it, keep it up. Now, as you're keeping it up, look, look up. That's your hand. You just voted and said God is sovereign. Okay, put your hand down now. If you believe God is sovereign, how do you respond to that? How do you respond, for example, to Romans 8.28? You know that verse. It says, For we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. Or Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. We were chosen having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. That's sovereignty. So when we look around the world, it looks like man is ruling. But then we read the Bible and we discover God is overruling. God is in charge. God is powerful, personal, involved, in control. But my question to you is, what does that actually do for you, believing in the sovereignty of God? I'll tell you what it should do. It ought to produce patience in us. It ought to produce gratitude in us. It ought to produce stability. Even the Bible says that when sudden terror comes to the life of a righteous person. He's not shaken. He's not afraid. 
There's that initial shakeup, but then there's the calming as we realize there is a sovereign God who has this thing wired. So if you don't have much patience, you don't have much gratitude, you don't have much stability, it's really because you don't really believe God is sovereign. God regulates the future. How do I respond to His sovereignty? Here's the third, and we'll close out the book. God rewards His own. Do I respond to Him personally? Verse 13, a final word to Daniel. But you go your way until the end, for you shall rest and you will arise to your inheritance at the end of days. Daniel, you're going to rest. You're going to die. But you're going to be resurrected. And eventually you're going to participate in the very glorious kingdom that you once predicted. Now, just think back and piece all the things you know about Daniel up to this point. Daniel was able to see the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, a resurrected end-time Roman Empire with a, a, a ruler we call the Antichrist, the beast, who's coming to persecute the world and trash it and all that stuff we've read about. He sees all that. But keep in mind that Daniel also saw a future kingdom beyond all the kingdoms of this earth. He said to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. He said all of these other kingdoms will shatter into nothingness, but God's going to set up an everlasting kingdom. Now here's the promise. Daniel, and we don't know how how long Daniel lived after this. He was like 90 years old almost in this chapter. So I I would only presume he died not long after this final revelation. But he died with the promise that after he rests, he will be resurrected and rewarded personally by God. That's his assurance. There is a rest and there is a reward for all of God's children who have a personal relationship with him. Do you have a personal relationship with him? If I were to ask you the question, how long do you have to live? You would have to say to me, I I don't know. But if I were to ask you a second question, you should be able to say, that I know. If I were to ask you, do you have the assurance that when you die, you will be forever in heaven with Him? If your answer is, boy, I hope so, wrong answer. If you're a Bible-believing Christian, your answer would be, I have that assurance. I know so. That's a personal relationship with him. Daniel had a personal relationship. Daniel was not a religious person. Well, you know, Daniel was a religious fellow in Babylon. No, he wasn't. He had a personal relationship with a personal God. He spoke to God every day. God spoke to him. There was a real relationship going on. The greatest human experience is to know God. Paul the Apostle wrote in Philippians, the heart cry of his life, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that you may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That's a personal relationship. Have you responded to him personally in all the studies we've made through Daniel? You've watched people come forward and give their lives to Christ. Have you personally responded to him? 
A.W. Tozer wrote this. Were all human beings suddenly to become blind, still the sun would shine by day and the stars by night. For these owe nothing to the millions who benefit from their light. So, were every man on earth to become an atheist, it would not affect God in any way. He is what he is in himself, without regard to any other. To believe in him adds nothing to his perfections. To doubt him takes nothing away. However, I want to be quick to add to what Tozer said. Yeah, it's not going to add anything to God's perfections, but it's going to add a lot to yours to believe in him to trust in Him personally. It's not going to add anything to God's perfections, but it will add to His joy and pleasure, for He created us with the intention of knowing Him and having a relationship with Him. He made you that you might know Him. Do you? Have you? Surrendered? Personally? Your life? Into His hands? Father, we, we bow. We bow before the God that reveals truth, knowing that we must respond to His authority. Before the God who regulates the future, knowing we must respond to Your sovereignty. And before the God who rewards His own, knowing that our response must be a personal one. Lord, it doesn't do us much good to just evaluate the truth unless we evaluate ourselves by the truth that we are seeing or hearing. Lord, I pray for anyone who is here this morning who doesn't personally know Christ. I pray that they will not be content to leave the auditorium until they do. We're about to close this service, get ready for another one, but... Right now, you're here, and I'm here with you. And we're here before the living God himself. And God sees you, and God knows you. And it's that God that sent Jesus out of heaven to die for you because he loves you. And he wants to erase all of your infractions, take away all of your guilt. Have you responded to him personally? If you never have, if you have merely been a religious person, if you have simply been a church-going person, or maybe you recall some time in your life when it was pure bliss to walk with Him, but you for many years have not been walking with Him, and you want to come back to Him. As we close the service, I simply want to pray for you. I need to know who I'm praying for. So if I just described you and you are willing today, right now, to give your life to Christ, would you raise your hand up in the air? Just raise it up and raise it up high enough so I can see it. But you're just simply saying, pray for me. I recognize my need for God. And I want to give Him my life in authenticity and reality. God bless you, sir, to my left. In the back, Lord bless you. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. To my right. To my far right. In the far back. Yes, sir. Father, there's lives all around this great auditorium with their hands raised. 
these are people who have real struggles real hopes real failures real sin loved by a real Savior who really wants to come in and change them I thank you for them I thank you for their honesty and pray Lord that you would do a profound work in changing their thinking and their lives and right where you are seated you who raised your hands would you right now right where you are say to him Lord I admit I'm a sinner forgive me I believe Jesus died on a cross that he shed his blood for me and that he rose from the dead for me I turn from my past, I turn from my sin, and I turn to you as my Savior. Help me. Help me to live for you. Help me to follow you as my Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. For more teachings from Calvary Albuquerque and Skip Heitzig, visit calvaryabq.org.